Definitely product market fit. I think too many startups say, I have a great idea. Let's just do it. And I always say, well, no, we have to figure that out. And they go, but I read the lean startup book. And I know if I ask people if they like this idea, then it's good. And I say, well, unfortunately, the lean startup book didn't tell you how to ask the right questions. They told you to go ask questions, but they didn't tell you how to ask the right questions, unbiased questions, non-leading questions. That's what we do. And so I tell people that instead of studying, do people like your idea, research, what are they doing now? How do they do it? what's working for them and what's not working for them and fine tune your solution. If this is your target audience, maybe you learn it's not. If it is your target audience, fine tune that solution for their unmet needs and their tasks. Hey everyone, this is Devin Miller here with another episode of The Inventive Journey. I'm your host, Devin Miller, a serial entrepreneur that's grown several startups into seven and eight figure businesses, as well as the founder and CEO of Miller IP Law, where we help startups and small businesses with their patents and trademarks. If you ever need help with yours, just go to strategymeeting.com. We're always here to help. Now, today we have another great guest on the podcast, Debbie Levitt, and to give you a bit of an introduction to Debbie. So um, she double majored in uh, pre-med and music. Um, and then always has been into computers and helping people. So started out doing some music in New York, uh, built her own website in the late 90s, started a consultancy in 95, and then did a startup in the early 2000s. I uh, went through an incubator um, and then uh, didn't get a patent, handed the business, so she'll get to talk a little bit about that. And then a little while ago was uh, also working on or had a problem that wanted to solve with um, some software. And so uh, that led her to where the business that, uh, that she's at today. So with that much as a quick introduction, welcome on the podcast, Debbie. Thank you so much, Devin. Good to be here. So I gave kind of the, a, a much quicker run through to a much longer journey. So let's uh, go back in time a bit and tell us a little bit about um, mate or double majoring in pre-med and music and how your journey got started there. Yeah, um, basically, I went to a university that didn't have minors. And so if you were into something, you were majoring in it. And at the time, I thought I wanted to be a genetic researcher. So I started out double majoring in pre-med and music. I eventually changed that to chemistry and music. I took physics with calculus. I took all kinds of things. And then it would just kind of hit me. I'm just a musician at heart. And I dumped all the science. I finished with a bachelor's in music from Tufts University. And after that, went to uh, for lack of a better job, I went and worked in the music business in New York City. I had a day job in a booking and management industry, uh, a small booking and management place. And uh, on weekends, I worked in Steely Dan's recording studio. So what are you now, Steely Dan's recording studio? So did you play the music? Did you help do the recording? Did you do backup singer? Eddie or all the above, what did you do when you were- I wish. Yeah. Unfortunately, you know, coming right out of college, um, I was at first officially a poorly paid intern. Um, but after they had some problems in the studio and they realized I didn't smoke, drink, or do drugs, they made me the weekend manager. So I didn't get to do too much uh, recording or uh, singing, though I wish I had. Uh, but it was a great experience with talented people. Pretty much everyone who came to the studio was somebody to learn from and somebody interesting. So it didn't necessarily shape my career so much, but it was a wonderful experience at the time. Awesome. Well, it sounds like a fun place to be and being in New York and uh, being in the music industry sounds like at least an exciting first opportunity. So you did that for a period of time and uh, you know we're in the music industry now. 
after you did that, you started, and correct me if I'm wrong, then you jumped over to building your own website in the late 90s and kind of building uh, building that, or kind of where did the journey go from there? Yeah, so in um, spring, I guess it must have been spring 1995, a college friend called me and said, you have to see this thing called the World Wide Web. And people can make pages for it. And I must have stayed awake for a week learning HTML and and some other things and started making web pages, started a little business designing websites, but I'm not an artist. So I started as kind of a business strategist and, and website creator in that sense and hired somebody who was great at coding and uh, visual design. So between the two of us, we had pretty much all the bases covered. And uh, and so I had a web design business as of 1995. And, and that was... Um, that's pretty much been my thing. Um, in in around, around 2000, we had to pivot a little bit because everyone who had a copy of Front Page thought they were a website genius and they didn't need our company. So, uh, so we started study, focusing. Front Page, for all, the, for all the audience that doesn't know, what is Front Page? For all What's you it? young ones. <laughs> yeah, if you don't remember Front Page, it was a Microsoft product that would let you design web pages without knowing any coding. And so uh, people who didn't know any coding and technically anything about making websites were now making websites. And so that was like accidentally a competitor. And so I started focusing on custom e-commerce and actually on eBay sellers and um, became one of the, the top eBay experts in the world who didn't work for eBay. And then eventually kind of realized that there was some, there was a name for what I was doing. I just didn't know. And and that name was really UX and CX, user experience. And so user experience is people who use psychology and strategy to make things user-friendly. And so it's like, oh, wait a minute, there's an there's a name for what I've been doing. Holy cats, I should probably get into this. And so I, I shifted again around 2008 into, again, what is more commonly called UX or CX. And that's been my world ever since. I changed my web design agency into a UX and CX agency and rebranded it a few times. And, um, and that, that kind you, of takes me up kudos. to today. I give you kind of air kudos because you got the UX and CX and, you know, my pastime and, you know, not that our website is perfect. I'm sure if somebody would go through it, they would, they would say, oh, these are all the things you can fix. But even that, I always love my, I love to just go and pull apart uh, law firm websites because the user experience is usually horrible. It's usually no call to action. There's usually nothing to do there. And it just looks pretty and it doesn't have any real user experience. And, you know, so that's always a drawback. But not, so I give it kudos because it's always interesting the best websites are oftentimes simpler. They're easier to understand. They have a good flow to them. And you don't realize what a good website is until you go to one that's funk or doesn't have a good design and doesn't have a good flow. And yeah, I think everybody that thinks of their website builder or they can have a good user experience because there are those tools that make it quote unquote easy in order to, to, to generate one because you know you can create something in a day. Now, whether it works, whether it looks good and everything else is a completely different story. So it's interesting how you kind of or found it and then have been evolving since so now and one of the things you mentioned is you did a startup i think if i remember right you did a startup in the early yeah. 2000s went through an incubator and, and uh tell us a little bit about that yeah i'm sorry i glossed over that one so that was a, a side adventure so in um 
in the late in the late 2000s i had been doing a lot of online dating and let's just say some of those were not going well and i didn't always feel safe and i had a kind of this system where um I had a friend of mine who would text me at certain points of the night and I had to give him a code word. And he knew that if I didn't give him the code word that I wasn't safe or that someone else had the possession of my phone and was just responding, yeah, I'm fine. So there was a word he was expecting. And um, and then there was also a word that meant I'm in trouble. And but But I would use it in a sentence, like let's say the word was sushi. And I could say, we didn't go for sushi tonight. We're having pizza, whatever. And he would go, oh no, she's in trouble. And the idea was that this would be kind of a disguised call for distress. Um, because again, there are so many people out there who, whether they're real estate agents or dating or whatever it is, who are, are, are either not safe or don't feel safe. And, um, and I said, gee, maybe this should be a real product because I think I've hit on something that I haven't seen from other systems. So in about 2011, we changed it from Deb's friend's texture to a system that actually could be automated where it was set to text me at certain times. It was set to look for certain words. And if the distress word came in or I didn't respond within a certain number of time, some predetermined contacts would be uh, contacted that that um, Deb might be in trouble. Here's her GPS location and here's what we know last know about her and, you know, try to call her, find some help. And so the system wouldn't call the police, but the system would try to contact people who cared about me and find me help. And so we started doing the whole Silicon Valley startup thing with that. We ended up in an incubator aimed at social good because they saw uses for this in other countries where people don't feel safe walking down the street at all ever. Um, and where it kind it went wrong for two reasons. One was we got a small angel investor who really forced us to try to spend the money fast and on stupid things. And I would have been much smarter and slower in how I spent the money. But there was a real feeling in the incubator that we were in where if you get money, spend it, spend it, spend it, show how you spent it and ask for more. Keep going out and pitching and asking for more. And, and that didn't make sense to me. To me, a successful company doesn't have to keep asking for more money. A successful company is doing enough of the right things that it can hopefully sustain itself. So sometimes when I see somebody got a series D, I'm like, are we sure we have a viable business model here? <laughs> so the, but that's my personal opinion. So the, the first problem was the, the small seed investor. And then the other problem was I unfortunately didn't have as good a patent lawyer as I should have had. And the if patent lawyer wrote that. a patent that to me looked good. I know, if only we had the time machine. Now there was a pre-existing patent, but it was a woman who was utilizing something a cousin of this to make sure that your dog walker came and walked your dog. And it really wasn't that close, but it was written so broadly. It was genius. I mean, it was written so fast. Well, the claims yeah. were just, yeah, uh, look, a well-written patent, you know, the end that's, it speaks yeah. for itself. So it was so well-written and, and my patent lawyer felt that we could cite it, but still show how our system was different. And long story short, I did not get the patent. The office said that I did not show enough distinction or, or novelty or uniqueness or, or whatever it might be. And I was quite disappointed in that, but I figured let's just keep doing this business because I can help people. I can help old people living alone who don't get checked on enough. They 
they can be checked on by this automated system. And we had all these different variations of it. We turned it into an app. And, and so I'd spent a lot of money and time on it, even though it was a side thing. And finally, it all fell. It was falling apart when I realized it was it, it was hard to get people to adopt it because people had a false sense of security. I went to a real estate conference and I asked a bunch of overdressed, over made up, high heeled, puffy haired women what they were going to do if they were showing a house to someone and they were suddenly unsafe. And they were like, I've got bug spray. I'll spray the bug spray in their face. And I was like, what if you can't get to your bug spray in time? And they like could not imagine an outcome in which they could not get to their bug spray. And another woman was like, well, I've got a gun. And I was like, and what if there's four guys and you can't get to your gun? And like, you could just see their faces going like, that can't happen. I have a gun. And so I found that there was this world where there were very limited groups of people who were uh, cognizant of how unsafe they, they could be. I found teens working in malls late at night who knew how unsafe they were. Their parents didn't. I had a lot of fathers going, what do you mean my daughter's unsafe? And I was like, what? Um, of course, being in San Francisco, I, the LGBTQ population understood that sometimes they were unsafe. And uh, women going on online dates recognized that they were unsafe and everybody else thought they were just fine. And so I said, you know, I don't think I'm going to be able to convince everybody that, that this will help them. And I think I'm a little ahead of my time here. And just as I was thinking of winding it down, some guy wrote to me and he's like, hey, I'm this real estate guy and we've got a system just like yours and we got the patent. And if you don't start paying us. And I was like, how'd you get the patent? Like the 2008 patent should have run you over in a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. um, so all of a sudden I had a patent troll who um, wanted to put me out of business, though I was I had no paying customers. I had no paying customers and I was just trying to help unsafe people and little old ladies living alone and people going on crappy dates and, um, and this guy wanted money. So I said, well, I'll just close my business. And I did. And it's so crazy because all the time you see on, on morning news and whatever, here's a great new safety app. And the crazy thing is people will talk about that safety app for a day it'll make the PR rounds and you never hear about it again. And they never go anywhere. And I found that most of them, here's the crazy part. Most of them have a giant button where if you're unsafe, you have to press the button. And mine was the dead man switch, which is a terrible name for it. But if you're unsafe, how do you press the button to tell it you're unsafe? I've yeah. never seen someone other than me solve that. And I have a patent troll who won't let me do it. So... Sorry, everybody. Sorry, everybody's daughters. Sorry, everybody's moms. And I still haven't seen a better version of it. I still see if you're, if you're a college girl and you're walking home and you're unsafe, press this button. And I'm thinking, I've been attacked, you know, like, uh, no. <laughs> I had a homeless guy throw a beer bottle at my face in broad daylight and... By the time I took my phone out, I couldn't remember how to dial 911 because I was in shock. Hmm. No, and so I, I, how I, are I, you going? To... Oh, go ahead. 
How are you going to press that button when you're unsafe? If 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 you're in shock, if you're being attacked, if you've been untacked, if you're if you're unconscious. So sorry to go on. You'll probably have to edit this, but that is the medium-sized story of of my previous startup. No, and I think that that's uh, definitely interesting in the sense that one is you had a what is a good idea, and obviously there was a market for it. And then you kind of you know what I think it shows is that I idea in and of itself and you know there's something out of your control but isn't going to get you isn't going to make a successful company in the sense of the mixture of you have to convince the right people that they need this and sometimes as you mentioned you may be too early or they may not realize that it's a need that they have and then you have to go about trying to convince them and sometimes you can convince them sometimes you can it's hard and then it's and then it's also having that, you know, that expertise and sometimes it's with the patent side, sometimes it's with marketing, sometimes it's sales and manufacturing, whatever. But sometimes, you know, that difference as to whether or not, you know, you versus the competitor is able to do it can oftentimes have an impact. So I think there's a lot of great lessons that, you know, learned about that experience. And so now, you, you know, so you were tried to do it for a while. You got the basically the cease and desist letter saying, hey, if you don't shut this down, we're going to sue you. You're saying, well, I'm not making any money out of it anyway. Why would I want to, you know, why would I want to have to get entangled into the legal or legal battle for something? Yeah, it didn't even get as far as a C and D. It was really just like, hey, we're we got this patent. You look like you're doing something similar. We're going to charge you X dollars a year to license this. And I said, I'm just going to shut down. Hmm. Didn't even get to C and D or anything. I I don't let things get that far. (laughs) And I understand. And a lot of times, just as a kind of a side note for the audience, a lot of times people send it out as a not a cease and desist, but as a, hey, would you like to license this such that you can't go and, and preemptively file in, in court and say, hey, I'm under the threat of lawsuit. I'd like to. So a lot of times they'll word it, carefully word it such that they'll ask for a license to give you a veiled threat such that you can't go in or if they decide not to pursue it, that they can't, uh, that, that you can't go and file a lawsuit before they, they do basically. So it's an interesting tactic that sometimes people will employ. So that was kind of a complete aside note, but kind of where you hit on it, always an interesting kind of tactic that sometimes yeah. they come up. So now you, it you works. Sure things down. It, and, and it works. And a lot of times, you know, if you don't, if you don't know, or even if you do know, and sometimes you're saying it's not worth it. And so that's why those letters often go out. And I've been on both sides of them or done with clients on both sides and um, part of the strategy and that. So now you shut it down. You say, okay, it's not worth pursuing. I may go back. And I assume you went back to the UX firm and, and continue or the agency that you've been doing. The yeah, I never time. stopped. Yeah, I never stopped doing the UX. I was doing the startup and and my my UX work and CX work at the same time. Um, I was living in the San Francisco area. And then I closed down the startup and and, uh, shut that puppy down. And, um, and so then I've continued doing my work and then kind of fast forward to, to my next invention, I guess. Are we up to that part of the story? I was going to say, just that was exactly. So tell us a little bit about as you're so you shut down the one business, you, you continue with the agency. And I always figure that side businesses are really just a second full-time job because they take tons of energy and time and effort. But you said, you know, so you go back and you continue on, not go back, but continue on with the agency. And then how did you kind of uh, come up with or, or come across the software program that you're working on now? And kind of how does that interplay with things? Yeah, so that's got nothing to do with safety. So it started on the summer of 2020. We had a large research uh, project, UX research project to do for a very famous company I shouldn't name. And it was just so difficult to manage some of the steps of uh, recruiting. A lot of people don't know that when companies do these research project with users and customers, there's a huge process we go through to figure out who do we want to talk to? 
Um, that seems, it sounds like it seems easy, but it's incredibly complicated. We just did another project and I think my assistant spent 80 hours on it. And so it's incredibly time consuming. Typically we run a survey, the survey comes back, who filled out the survey? Do we want to talk to them? Do they seem like a good match to, to who we're looking to talk to? Can we balance men and women? Can we balance ages? Can we balance different things so that we have a good broad group of people? And it is so time consuming and so manual and none of the systems talk to each other. You're doing this in a survey tool. You're doing this in an Excel document. You're then you're emailing them. Then you're telling them to go to your Calendly or something and book some time with you. Then you're doing, you're telling them to go to DocuSign or HelloSign and sign your legal uh, release form for the, the research. It's all these disconnected pieces that don't talk to each other. So I started looking for, is there some system that brings all these things together? And there's only one company really doing that right now. So I signed up for their free trial and I started using them and I thought it was, we'll say that again. Is it Zapier slash Zapier, however you pronounce it? The company that's- No, no, no. So Zap, no, Zapier has got nothing to do with this. Yeah. So Zapier, I love Zapier. was kind of what what came to mind in a completely different context and different, but that's kind of for CRM. Totally different. No, and I get that, but that give it context to people that are listening is kind of Zapier, at least from my very limited understanding of, and I've only touched Zapier a couple of times, but it's kind of an integrator, multiple systems to stitch them together because the in a different way, in a different context, people are trying to say, I don't want to use 20 different systems. Yeah, it's different. So Zapier is more of a, so Zapier works, so quickly, side note, Zapier works on a system of trigger and events. I'm a paying customer, so I can quickly tell you that. So Zapier will say, for example, when you make an appointment with Debbie, Zapier will go in and find that appointment and maybe modify it in some way. And when, uh, so it's kind of like when X happens, do Y. And so there's an, there's an individual trigger that makes Zapier do a thing. Um, when someone, uh, signs up to be on Devin's podcast, add them to this Google sheet. So, so my system is not like Zapier because it's not like when one thing happens, do this other thing. It's more like, how do we get a survey system to talk to an Excel spreadsheet, to talk to a scheduling system, to talk to legal document signing, to talk to emailing people, to talk to texting people, Mm -hmm. to talk to all kinds of, of pieces of information that are stored when research is being planned. So I found one competitor, not Zapier, and they were bringing these systems together, but I didn't like the way their system worked. I didn't like their pricing and their customer support was unforgivably bad. I mean, bizarrely bad. Like I started wondering, who am I talking to right now? Because this is just surreal. And I walked away feeling like, I think I can do a better job here. And um, so my thought was, how do I build a better mousetrap? And of course, I started like many founders do, looking at my own needs. But I knew that if you only look at your own needs, you're not really assessing or validating product market fit. And so since we are UX researchers, I assembled a team of apprentice UX researchers and to help them level up in their craft and give them some paid work to do. I had them um, do real UX research. We interviewed 26 researchers. Um, 
across uh, different types of UX researchers, some academics, some corporate, some th things like that. And they found out what these people, how these people do it now, where it works for them, where it doesn't, what do they need, what do they not need? And then we could see, are we building something that these people need? And if not, how do we adjust what we're doing so that it fits real people's needs, tasks, workflows, decision points? So armed with that, we started uh, building this thing and as it was, I mean, we haven't built it yet. We're still designing it. So the engineers haven't started as of when we're recording this. Um, but we, along the way, I ended up kind of inventing and innovating some, some new ways, not just to automate these processes, but to really bring in kind of some of the sneaky tricks from UX. You know, it, it's some of the sneaky things that we do on clients' websites. I was like, why don't I solve my own problems with some of the things we normally do? And and these aren't, I'm, I'm joking, they're sneaky tricks, but they're things like task analyses, knowledge design, and optimized task flows, which will mean nothing to anybody listening. But, you know, if you're good at that stuff, then you, you know, if, you, if you've Googled it, you know what I mean. So through th something like knowledge design, we can uh, create something much uh, better for users and bring innovations to this process to not only stitch a bunch of things together and have them exist in one piece of software so that you're just in one walled uh, playground, uh, but to give people features that they only dreamt of. Uh, so, so that was our chance to innovate something fresh. So some of it is not reinventing a wheel and I don't expect to patent that. And some of it is, uh, inventing some new wheels and I hope to patent that. Awesome. Well, I think that that's, it sounds like a lot of, you know, and it's always interesting. And I, I've had some of those businesses as well, where like, you know, I hate this user experience. I think that they do a terrible job and I honestly think I could do a much better job. And I think I'm more qualified than them. And then you go do it and, you know, sometimes it turns out awesome, turns out great. And sometimes you get into it and say, oh, that is a lot harder than I thought it would be. And that's, that's probably why they don't do a good job. So it's always interesting how you kind of come across <laughs> those. And sometimes you solve it and you do it much better and it makes a great business. Another time you're saying, okay, I, now that I've put a lot more effort into it, I get why they're, why they are the way they are at. So that's, that's a fun, or a fun kind of um, to hear how you got into the, the business you're at today. So that kind of takes us up to a bit where you're at today and looking just a little bit into the future and uh, definitely be fun. We always do kind of where are they at now episodes where you come back on in six months and we chat a little bit about there. So Yay. I'll have to come back. I have to have you come back on and uh, give an update uh, once things uh, or get uh, further on and get to uh, get towards launching. Um, but as we, uh, as we wrap up for today's episode, I always have two questions I ask at the end of each podcast. And so we'll kind of jump to those now which the first question I always ask is, along your journey, what was the worst business decision you ever made and what did you learn from it? Oh man, um, what's the worst business decision I've ever made? I, I don't know, sometimes I think, uh, though also in hindsight, this wouldn't have been great either, but someone offered to buy my company many years ago, my agency. And I sometimes wonder if that would have made me a little more financially comfortable than I've ended up. So um, sometimes I feel like that was a missed opportunity. Um, I uh, Back in my music business days, I once had the Debbie Harry from Blondie ask me to come on stage and sing a song instead of her. And I didn't take that opportunity. And um, 
Uh, I wonder what would have happened if I did. Uh, I don't, I'm not saying these are bad decisions, but I'll just say that these are decisions that would have sent me on different unknown trajectories. But I, I try to be a very risk calculating person. So I, I usually don't regret too many decisions later, but there are certainly things that went wrong along the way. I, I would say one of the, one of the worst was probably taking that seed money as a startup because those people were so over controlling and bizarre and definitely didn't have the the startup's best interest in heart well no and i, and I think that there's it's always interesting it, it would be fun and not possible to have that time machine and see if you made if you taken the other routes or done the other decisions where it would have lived you and yet you can't go back and sometimes you're you know you probably look back and say oh i should have done this and if you'd really been able to go back and do that it wouldn't have turned out any better maybe turned out in worse and it would be or sometimes maybe it would have been a great decision so no that, idea one of those but it's always fun. It's always fun to work or wonder just a little bit and ponder. So that's a, a great thing to learn from. So now the second question I always ask is, if you're talking to somebody that's just getting into a startup or a small business, what would be the one piece of advice you'd give them? Definitely product market fit. I, I think too many startups say, I have a great idea. Let's just do it. And I always say, well, no, we have to figure that out. And they go, but I read the Lean Startup book. And I know if I ask people if they like this idea, then it's good. And I say, well, unfortunately, the Lean Startup book didn't tell you how to ask the right questions. They told you to go ask questions, but they didn't tell you how to ask the right questions, unbiased questions, non-leading questions. That's what we do. And mm -hmm. so I tell people that instead of studying, do people like your idea, research, what are they doing now? How do they do it? what's working for them and what's not working for them and fine tune your solution. If this is your target audience, maybe you learn it's not. If it is your target audience, fine tune that solution for their unmet needs and their tasks. And don't ask them things like, do you like it? Will you buy it? Will you pay $17 a month for it? Nobody can predict their future. I think we all learned that about a year and a half ago when the pandemic started. So at make sure for product market fit, you're not making the typical mistake of, well, I asked a bunch of people and they told me my idea was great. So we're going to build it. No. And I, and I think that, you know, I'd, I'd add on to that. You know, one of the other things is you say, well, if I, if I need it or I like it or I'd use it, everybody has got to use it. And that's even worse. And then you don't even get any feedback because you're saying, <laughs> oh, I definitely know. And so, but, and it, but I also like, you know, you kind of point out is, you can ask a lot of people a lot of questions and one you may not be asking the, the right people the right questions you may not even be able to ask the right people you may have an audience that's a you know demographic it's a younger demographic and if you go ask old you know older demographic it's not going to get the right feedback and you're not and they may tell you this is a stupid idea and they hate it and they never pay for it but it's because you're getting the wrong demographic or you're getting the wrong you know whatever it is and so finding those right people and asking the right questions i definitely think there's an art to it you know, my, as a kind of a side note, I had a, a business that we did that with, and it was interesting. It was the first one we'd done it, uh, you know, when, and it was earlier on in the career. And we had, you know, the focus group come in and kind of get that feedback. And all the, all the work that went into there, we got great feedback, but it was a lot of work to get that or get it to the right level, to the right people and get that feedback such that it was worthwhile rather than just go and ask, you know, five of your, of your friends or five people on the street. So I think that's a great piece of advice.
And quick note I want to add is um, in UX, we mostly don't believe in surveys or focus groups. So again, we believe mostly in observational research. Watch people doing whatever you think you are solving or improving, and you'll figure out where they're having problems and, and if there is a need there. If you send out a survey, it's usually garbage. And unfortunately, many focus groups either suffer from groupthink or they suffer from people not being honest as they'd like to because they fear other people in the room might be judging them. So uh, while that tends to be a marketing tactic, UX, UX tends to do other things. And so, um, but again, you can always hire a UX genius to help you with your product market fit. All right. Well, that gives a perfect segue because that was going to be my next question, Phil. People want to reach out to you. They want to connect up to you. They want to be a client, a customer. They want to be an employee. They want to be an <laughs> investor. They want to be your next best friend, any or all of the above. What's Aww. the best way to reach out, contact you, find out more? Well, thanks, everybody. Uh, yeah, you can certainly find me at DeltaCX.com. That's my company, Full Service CX and UX Agency. I am findable on LinkedIn as Debbie Levitt. Uh, I'll spell this if you're hearing audio only, D-E-B-B-I-E. L-E-V, like Victor, I-T-T. Those are the main places where I hang out. I also have a YouTube channel called Delta CX, and I talk about CX and UX all day long. And as for my super research interview project, I'm sure that whenever it's gone live, it will be on the Delta CX website being promoted. So it will not be a secret. If it exists, it'll be on there. Um, but again, we're still at the phase of doing the, the UX design and work on it, and the programmers haven't started. So I'm definitely some months away from uh, a release. I hope it'll be out late 2021. Awesome. Well, definitely great way to connect up. Plenty to look forward to and uh, a, a few uh, teasers for the future as well. So awesome on all fronts. So well, thank you again thank for you. coming on the podcast. It's been a fun. It's been a pleasure. Now for all of you that are listeners, if you have Thanks. your own journey to tell and you want to be a guest on the podcast, feel free to go to inventiveguest.com. Apply to be on the show. Two more things as a listener. One, make sure to click subscribe to your podcast player so you know when all of our awesome episodes come out. And two, leave us a review so everybody else can find out about all of our awesome episodes. Last but not least, if you have any help with patents, trademarks, anything else, just go to strategymeeting.com. We're always here to help. Thank you again, Debbie. It's been fun. It's been a pleasure. And wish the next labor journey even better than the last. Thanks so much. Bye, everybody. Good luck. <laughs>